In the ninth season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great writers and works of literature that have been requested by you, the listeners. So, where to begin? Well, how about this? Wild nights, wild nights, were I with thee. Wild nights should be our luxury. Futile the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but moor tonight in thee. Yep, no compass and no charts this season. Nothing but love and an open sea. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode one, the great and passionate Emily Dickinson. This season's going to be quite a bit different than the other ones we've had. Fundamentally, on a a deeper level, it's not going to have any theme. There's not going to be a recurring thing going through the entire season, other than the fact that all of these topics, whatever topics we're going to cover in these next five episodes, we're all... Uh, listener requests, something that we've heard from the listener and say, hey, why don't you do, why don't you try, how about this? So we've had, you know, looking at the requests we've had, we we had a few. We didn't have a ton to go through. We're not going to oversell it, but we had a few. And one of them in general was just the idea of poetry. And then specifically, no poem in mind was mentioned, but the idea of tackling someone like Emily Dickinson. So I guess start off with a thanks to the listeners that did put in any kind of recommendations. But personally, this one has me in a tough spot. Everyone has a blind spot and poetry is mine. You know, my life, I I guess it's a, a cliched story, but I, I wasn't allowed to read poetry growing up. My grandma, the family matriarch, a, a real, Iron Lady, and not in the super fun way that Margaret Thatcher was. She completely forbade poetry throughout our clan, thought rhyming was a tool of the devil, and that free verse was some sort of communist ploy. You know, uh, when it was studied in, in school, I got a note that excused me from class. And by the time I was old enough to break free and, and make my own choices, I was way too swept up in the rock and roll energy of someone like Tolstoy. So I really missed out on poetry and I missed out on Emily Dickinson. So tell me a little bit about her. Wow. That's uh, quite a backstory there. Free verse was a communist ploy. You know, I don't know where you come up with this stuff, but I think you might have too much time on your hands. Okay. So to set us straight, you want to know something about Emily Dickinson. Well, Emily Dickinson was an American poet born in Massachusetts in 1830. 
She wrote over 1,800 poems and over 1,000 letters, but actually she was unknown during her lifetime. It wasn't until her sister discovered her poems after Emily had died that her work became public. Beginning in her early 20s, she only dressed in white. She also lived most of her life in isolation and towards the end of her life, barely left her bedroom. Not surprisingly, she was viewed by many locals as an eccentric figure. Now, the majority of her poems explore the themes of death, immortality, nature, and love. And her style? Well, it was pretty unique. It didn't always fit the conventional poetical rules of the time. She died early at the age of 55. Emily Dickinson is now considered one of America's greatest poets. Like I already copped to, I, I did a lot of cramming in preparation for this episode. I read as much as I could, but, you know, I'm, I'm no Emily Dickinson expert. So I, I thought I'd look at, uh, you know, a favorite song lyric of mine. You know, it's kind of the poetry of the modern time for non-poetry lovers. So I thought about this one. Great lyrics from the song Terriers by uh, Bruce McCullough and Kids in the Hall. It goes, no one wants to die like this guy died. Died, 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 died. Worms eating your eyes. Bass solo. Now, are lyrics really the new poetry? Are those lyrics poetry? It's above my pay grade. But I did detect in the little bit of cramming I did, there's a recurring theme in, in Emily Dickinson poems. There's a motif. And, you know, it's got to be a preoccupation with death. Yeah, definitely death. And I would say faith, too, were constantly on Dickinson's mind. So, yeah, it's not surprising that many of her poems and letters have these as their central topic. And though she writes about her moments of faith, I think it's really death that ever-present imperator that takes center stage and is treated with the most respect. As her niece said, Dickinson was eternally preoccupied with death. Actually, Dickinson's curiosity about death began when she was a, a child, where, as she noted in one of her early poems, people went away and never came back. So, in this way, she's, she's not someone who ever shirked away from thinking about or meditating on death and dying. Dickinson then, in her sensitivity to and thoughtfulness about death, doesn't suffer from the malady that the Roman poet Lucretius thought most of us do. You see, Lucretius believed that we all suffered from a, a deep, pervasive fear of death, which was not always conscious. And he thought it's this deep fear, this repressed existential anxiety, that causes us to live our life with constant activity and to distract ourselves with material goods. In other words, we're doing whatever we can to try to avoid death, to not confront or deal with it. Actually, Kierkegaard talks about the same thing. Keeping constantly, pathologically busy is just a way of avoiding the elephant in the room. 
Anyway, I, I guess my point is that Dickinson was early on and throughout her life existentially tuned in. There just was no bad faith with her and her dealings with, well, reality. Her agnosticism reveals that despite her occasional moments of wishful thinking or flights of fancy, she just couldn't ignore the facts on the ground. Anyway, she understood that to face your fears is healthy. As she said, to know the worst leaves no dread. And you know, I think one reason she was so sensitive to death was because, well, she was so sensitive to life. I mean, when you're so keen to observe all natural phenomena, like she was, you're going to be also observant of physical death, right? But all this raises the question, so what is death for Dickinson? Well, it's a buzzing fly. It's dust. It's a doorway. It's a distance from life. And she offers up dozens of various descriptions like this. But you know what? Basically, it's the unknown. And at times, the nonsensical. To paraphrase Dickinson, we never know where nor when we're going to go. Now, there is in all of this ambivalence a deep existentialist, even at times tragic, outlook. Dickinson recognizes the limitations of the self in a threatening, unfamiliar world. She understands that we're all ruled by uncertainty and time. She knows, along with the author of Ecclesiastes, that we're all marked by ignorance and that our perspective is just too limited to permit any assurances about the ultimate meaning of things. Actually, you know what? In some ways, Dickinson's view is a lot like Melville's in admitting the facts of our inability to ever know the deepest truths. The truth about that great, inscrutable whale. Something, by the way, we talked about in some depth a few episodes ago. But that said, what's great about Dickinson is that she still insisted on asking the questions, even if they weren't answerable. And not only that, but unlike Ahab in Melville, she doesn't really turn against God or these deeper, inscrutable realities. No, she holds up some hope, and she remains somewhat optimistic, despite the uncertainty. Anyway, I think that at the end of the day, what's important to understand here is that it's precisely Dickinson's understanding of us as dependent beings living under precarious conditions that makes the fact of life so important for her. It's important because as death is nigh, life is, as she says, brittle and porcelain-like. And it's this awareness of death and our easy susceptibility to it that fills her with an intoxicating, almost crazy joy in being alive. It is, as she says, the fact that it will never come again that makes life so sweet. Okay, so I just want to mention one more thing. You know, Dickinson, despite her skepticism, was very preoccupied with immortality. And maybe I've downplayed that a little bit. But 
let's just leave Dickinson's own views on this for a moment. Because I sort of want to ask a different question. What I'm wondering is, if today, given all we know about science and the workings of the world, if it's even possible to coherently believe in anything like rebirth or in the survival of our death. I mean, is all hope lost on that front today? Well, maybe not. I mean, in one way, you could argue that we do have recourse to imitations of death and rebirth. How so? Well, they're to be found in the very routine and rhythms of daily life. I mean, let's remember that, according to ancient mythology, Hypnos, the god of sleep, and Thanatos, the god of death, were twins, the sons of the god night. So, I don't know, maybe we could build on this and see a kind of parallel between sleep and awakening on the one hand, and death and rebirth on the other. In other words, sleeping is darkness, heaviness, and a kind of death, and to awake is to be born again. That is, to wake up is a rebirth and a regeneration. It's to have revived oneself, to have shed the weight of the past, and it's to inaugurate a new order. It's the renewal of the world. Compared to the Well, the horizontality of sleep. Waking up is verticality. Symbolically, it's a kind of ascension. To awake is a resurrection then. It's a passage from death to life and a conversion. Every morning then is, well, a miracle. So much great writing is fueled by ambivalence, ambiguity, paradox. We already talked about uh, Emily Dickinson's morbid fascinations, but simultaneously we could talk about her being life-affirming. We could look at uh, the, her complicated relationship with religion, uh, with God within her poems. Could go on and on with other examples, but I don't know, this might seem like an oversimplification, so please complicate, then clarify when I shut up. But what about the idea of nature? Simply, I, I guess, the idea of, of how we, through her poems, can perceive nature, how we sense it, or uh, the sensualness of nature itself. Yeah, no, no, I get what you're saying. There's definitely an emphasis in her poetry on nature, and on the the bodily or sensual world. Okay, so to begin to approach this, let me start with one of her smaller poems, where she talks about, well, the greatness of being alive, the, the power of existence. More specifically, in this poem, what she seems to do is to equate life with omnipotence, which suggests then no need for a distinct omnipotent God in this life. Okay, so this is the part of the poem that I'm talking about. She says, To be alive is power, existence in itself, without a further function, omnipotence enough. Again, mere existence is unlimited power. If we wake up to it, there's a vitality to life that rivals or even usurps what we can get from religion. 
inherent in our human capacities, our full exploitation of them, is a joy and a vitality that you can't get anywhere else. I don't know, maybe that explains her fear of death. That deep down she knows that there just is no rival for the sort of ecstasy and joy that being alive affords. Actually, you know what, some of this reminds me a bit of Aristotle. And that might seem a bit weird, right? Because Aristotle is someone who's associated with a kind of cool or measured rationality. And rightly so, in many ways. But what often gets overlooked with him is his emphasis on joy or pleasure and its connection with being alive and making full use of our human capacities. You see, Aristotle understands pleasure in a really interesting way. Namely, he sees it as something like doing whatever you're doing in an absorbed, zestful, flowing, and excellent way. Or to put it another way, pleasure is something which accompanies fully functioning and unimpeded activity. Okay, so just take something basic, like our ability for seeing. I mean, Aristotle would say that when we're seeing clearly, when our sight is not blurry, and when there's nothing obstructing our view, then that's a supremely pleasurable activity. Actually, Dickinson herself hints at something like this in a letter that she wrote to a friend where she says that she noticed that the supernatural was only the natural disclosed, and that it's not revelation that waits, but our unfurnished eyes. In other words, if we could just open up our eyes, if we really made use of that capacity, we would see just how much beauty there really is out there, all those wondrous things hidden from our everyday sight. So, the real revelation is in some sense a product then of our heightened natural senses. Maybe something like this is why she uses the term finite infinity. You know, because nature's treasures and revelations are inexhaustible or eternal. Anyway, so back to Aristotle. So, for Aristotle, it's not just about sight, but the same thing applies with our body as a whole. Pleasure or joy is something that accompanies the smooth functioning of our bodily capacities. When we're healthy, when things are working like they should, well, there's nothing more pleasurable, more exhilarating than that. To wake up in the morning completely refreshed, where everything seems to be shining, and a a zest or dynamism runs through you, where you find yourself doing things without effort or resistance, well, Things can't get any better than this. It's to be born again. Now this is the epitome of happiness for Aristotle, or the sweet sentiment of existence, as Rousseau puts it, although for him it's slightly different. So it's sad, isn't it, that many of us still live sleepily, dazed and confused, lost in habitual behaviors. That we bypass opportunities to take joy in life itself. And again, maybe this is only possible if we're brought back to our bodies, with our organs and senses awake. I mean, I don't think we spend much time with our senses awake. And that's tragic. It's tragic because the greatest possession we have is nothing we live in 
or carry around with us, its embodied existence itself. And when we're brought back to this, we can, well, make our summers long and turn being itself into something hugely voluptuous, to paraphrase André Gide. I don't know, as, as much as Dickinson was informed by religion and clearly concerned by it, I think at times she realized just how stifling it can be. You know, this reminds me of this story I came across about a, a conversation between a monk and an abbot. So, this young monk arrives at a monastery, where he's given the task of helping the, the other monks copy the canons of the church by hand. Now, at some point, he notices that the monks are copying from copies. So, he goes to the old abbot and he questions this. He tells him that if there were even a small mistake earlier on, that it would never be picked up. In fact, it would just be continued in all subsequent copies. The abbot, having listened to the young monk, says, well, we've been copying from copies for centuries. But, you know, you do have a good point. So the abbot goes down to the vaults, way down deep in the caves under the monastery where the original manuscripts have been sitting for hundreds of years. Many hours go by, and nobody sees the old abbot. Finally, the, the young monk gets really worried. So he goes down there. He finds the old abbot, who's pounding his fists against the wall and weeping uncontrollably. Concerned, he asks him, Father, Father, what's wrong? And in a choking voice, the old abbot answers, The word was celebrate, not celibate. Okay, well, you know, it's sometimes said that Emily Dickinson is expressing that carpe diem, or as it's become translated, the, the seize the day attitude that's become so popular today. But you know, it's really interesting. That expression has become somewhat distorted. It actually shouldn't be translated as this. It's actually a horticultural expression, which comes from the poet Horace, and it means, well, plucking the day. So, think about the difference between our version, seize the day, and the more accurate, pluck the day. Seizing the day seems to connote taking what you can get, right? It suggests something aggressive, something about consumption. So, think about how much this translation just reveals our background assumptions today. What it is that we really value in our consumerist and egocentric society. But plucking the day, however, suggests not aggression and acquisition, but tender care and harvest. It suggests a, a close relationship with nature and having a sensory experience with it. Well, it seems to me that if we're going to connect Dickinson with one of these translations, it must be the older, more accurate one. It's taking the time to smell the rose, not snatch it before it's gone.
listening to The Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode, Dostoevsky's The Possessed. Breath was gone.